0: what is cow's milk? It's something that a postpartum cow makes to feed her young, right? And to get an itty bitty baby calf to a really big cow really quickly. So no matter how you try and modify it and make it low fat, et cetera, dairy is primarily made up of sugars. And it is a very nutrient dense, calorie dense food that's designed to grow an animal very quickly. So we'll just start with that. The second thing is it's it's designed for baby cows. So as human adults, the idea that we're kind of suckling a postpartum cow, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense, right? And that's why about 70% of the world's population is lactose intolerant because we lose the enzyme called lactase and it's located in the small intestine along the brush border. And you can lose it if you get a bad gastrointestinal infection, you can lose it. Certain ethnic groups tend to have more of it versus others, but we'll typically lose it. Most people will lose most of it, if not all of it, by the time we're adults, because we're really not meant to be drinking the milk from including our own mother's breast milk. I mean, by all means, nurse until your kid is a few years old. In some cultures, they nurse kids until five or six or seven years old, and that's Mm -hmm. wonderful. But there's no culture where they're nursing, you know, a 43-year-old man, right? That just, (laughs) that doesn't exist.
1: Welcome everyone to the Anonymous Third Podcast. It's great to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and today we're gonna hear from an expert in all things gut. Dr. Robin Chutkan. When I say expert, I want her credentials to speak for themselves and everything she's done. It's pretty amazing. Dr. Chutkan received her medical degree from Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, where she also did her internship and residency and served as chief resident. She's been on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital since 1997 and is serving as medical consultant and on-air talent for the Discover Health Channel. She's also a member of the medical advisory board for The Dr. Oz Show where she's appeared multiple times and has also made national appearances on The Today Show, The Morning Show, and The Doctors. And as if that wasn't enough, Dr. Chuck Hatt is also the author of two best-selling books, Gut Bliss and The Microbiome Solution, and has another book due out summer of 2022. Whew, that was a mouthful. I knew I had her on the podcast, so to share her incredible wealth of knowledge, and I'm excited for you to hear all the insights on one of the biggest buzzwords in the health community, which is gut health. Also, I'm a man who hates redundancy but loves a game. If you count the number of times we talk about gut and health or say those words in today's show, comment the answer and I will randomly select a couple of the right answers and send you a not almost their hat. In today's episode, we really dive deep into what gut health is why it's important, and my favorite part. Robin shares her great actionable advice on what to avoid, and she also shares the best foods to keep your system happy and healthy, and why the gut really is the the true north star of your body by helping you stay healthy naturally during this constant COVID battle and the dreadful flu season. But before we get into it, I am so excited to share with you a special offer for my Not Almost Their Family. For the last two weeks, I've been talking about Refuel, which is a free conference. And this will feature Jim Quick, Angelo Emanuel Davis, and Jocko Wilnick, to name a few. It's happening in the Chicagoland area December 15th. And today, I want to give you early access to be able to claim your ticket, virtually or in person, before the event sells out. It is about to sell out. Simply go to Not Almost There. forward slash refuel. That is going to forward you to my company's website, uh, Dealer Inspire, so don't be jarred by that uh, redirect experience and you can get your ticket there. This event will be highly promoted this week, so please take advantage of this early access. Now, that all said, grab your green drink, throw your shoes on, and let's get out into the frigid air. I guess that depends on where you live. If you're in Chicago, it's pretty cold. And listen to today's episode with Robin Chutkan. Welcome, Dr. Chutkan, to the Not Almost There podcast. It's so great to have you here today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So I, I have a, a question. We're going to dive in to a lot of information on gut health. But as a 43-year-old male, I obviously hear a lot about gut health, and it's become a buzzword for lack of better words over the last few years, for sure. But what, why, why is gut health important to someone like myself?
0: So I want you to just think about where your gut is located, Joe, right? It's right in the middle of your body. And it really is the engine. So not just in the obvious way, right, like fuel, but also in terms of the immune system and lots of other processes. So it's right in the center of the body. And then you can think about all your other organ systems like your brain, the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, all those other things sort of feed off of the gastrointestinal tract. So you're right in the sense that the gut is having a moment, the gut is kind of hot, it's sort of sexy these days. It was not when I went into gastroenterology, people were like, why do you want to muck around in people's colons? Like, ah, it was definitely, you know, everybody wanted to do dermatology or orthopedics when I was in medical school, but the gut is having a moment, which is fantastic. But it just is that central physical location in the center of the body, I think also speaks to its central role in health. And, you know, Hippocrates said it thousands of years before I did, all disease begins in the gut. But when you flip that, really a lot of remedies, a lot of solutions, so for example, we're finding out now autoimmune diseases, a lot of them have their sort of foundational root in the gut, a lot of neurological conditions have their foundational root in the gut, a lot of psychiatric and mood disorders, and on and on and on. So that's why it is, you know, it's where it's at basically
1: so it, w- when you say gut obviously i know where that is in my body but what what is the gut kind of composed of is it just your stomach is it your uh, your esophagus it like what what part are we talking about here?
0: Yeah, it's my real estate that I claim for my patients is everything from the mouth to the anus. So the mouth is actually part of the digestive system and digestion starts in the mouth. It starts with the salivary enzymes that get secreted. And what's really fascinating is those enzymes get secreted even before the food gets into the mouth. Like if you look at something really tantalizing and delicious, you start to secrete those enzymes. So you get the pre-digestion in the mouth. So that's the first part. And we, and we sort of think of it, Joe, as upper digestive tract, lower digestive tract. So the upper digestive tract is the mouth. It's connected to the esophagus. That's connected to the stomach. And that's connected to the small intestine. And the small intestine has three parts. It has the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. And in medical school, we remembered it as dogs jump in. Don't ask me. You know, these are the crazy <laughs> mnemonics yeah. that, we, that we used. So that's upper GI tract, basically. And then the lower GI tract is simpler because it's really just the one colon or large intestine. So these, these terms are all used interchangeably. So when people talk about the large intestine, they're talking about the colon. When they talk about the lower gastrointestinal tract, they're talking about the colon. And the upper GI tract, they're generally talking about the stomach and sometimes the small intestine, which is in between the stomach and the colon. And again, dogs jump in, duodenum, jejunum, ileum. And what's really cool is that all these different parts of the digestive tract do completely different things. They have different cells involved, they're different enzymes involved, they have different function. And we also, in gastroenterology, we also count the gallbladder and the liver as our organs. So these are solid organs unlike the digestive tract, which is a visceral or hollow organ, you know, long tube. Um, but the liver is a solid organ, as you know, up in the right upper quadrant, and the gallbladder sits right underneath the liver. So, we claim those two.
1: Got it. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that that clarity. So, before we dive deeper in into this, you had alluded to This not being a very hot topic when you were in medical school, what made you want to get into being a gastroenterologist in the first place?
0: So I really wasn't interested in gastroenterology when I started medical school. My dad is an orthopedic surgeon, now retired. He's 86. He's not operating anymore. And my brother's an orthopedic surgeon, my older brother. So I thought, right, I'm going into the family business. I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And literally within about... 12 minutes of my orthopedic surgery rotation, I was like, "Uh, this is not for me. No disrespect to all my orthopedic family members and colleagues out there, but I was like, this is a lot of sawing and hammering and drilling. And I, I was not that keen on it, but I was still thinking something surgical. So I thought about general surgery and I found the surgical subspecialties as you call them in general surgery to be pretty hierarchical. You know, it was sort of The interns, the residents, the chief resident, the junior attendings, it was very kind of yes, sir, no, sir, at least my experience in medical school during that rotation, almost sort of military. You know, they run a tight ship. And uh, I also didn't love the fact that most of what was going on during the day happened in the operating room. Then you came out of the operating room and you sort of handed the patient off. And and not to say that surgeons aren't involved in post-operative care, they really are. But the operating room and what happened in the operating room was so central to surgical practice that I was a little less keen on it. So gastroenterology for me was sort of a a good combination of I also really wanted to be the kind of doctor who if a neighbor got sick, I knew what I knew what to do. I didn't want to be so specialized in something Mm -hmm. that, you know, I couldn't do like some basic CPR, figure out a basic problem. And gastroenterology, it's a very procedure-oriented field. So we do spend a lot of time, you know, knee-deep, up in people's colons or down in their stomachs. So there is that sort of procedure piece, which I like. I like doing an actual procedure, taking out polyps, things like that. But there's a lot of just basic internal medicine and, and sort of general care. And even more now, these days, where there's so much nutrition involved, there's the immune system, all of that. So I like that there was a whole other piece beyond just the procedure part in gastroenterology, and it really is an equal opportunity employer. I mean, GI problems affect men and women. There is definitely a female bias, and that might have to do with some anatomical differences in the female gastrointestinal system that I'm happy to share with you if you're interested, Um, but also the fact that women tend to seek care more for GI problems. It doesn't necessarily mean they have more GI problems, but they seek more care. But it is, you know, the digestive tract and the problems that can arise there affect people from the cradle to the grave. And I liked that, that it was broad, that it was men and women and young and old and sort of everything in between.
1: Was, was there something that surprised you when you were in medical school or you realized how important the the gut and everything that, that you were learning was with regards to the entire human body and how it impacted everything?
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's such an interesting question because in medical school, I think you're so kind of autopilot pedal to the pedal that you're not sort of thinking more profoundly about these questions. And it is really a process of elimination, figuring out what field, you know, there's so many fields in medicine. And so there's some things like, I knew I couldn't do ophthalmology because uh, between you and me and all your listeners, I could never see the retina. They would constantly be in the ophthalmology rotation. Do you see the retina? And I'm like, yeah, I think I see the retina. I think I've never seen the retina. (laughs) You know, if that's ophthalmology 101, when you take the ophthalmoscope and you you know adjust it to look at the retina and I can't see the retina, I'm going to be a crummy ophthalmologist. So, and then there were things like, I loved urology, but urology, at least the urology clinic at Columbia where I went to medical school, it was a lot of older men with prostate problems, and they were not trying to drop trow for me. They were like, "Um, where's the older doctor who looks like me?" Yeah. So it was, you know, it was one of those things where, and I understand that sort of desire for a gender-concordant physician. I get it, right? So I thought urology could be challenging. Neurology was really fascinating, but nobody seemed to really get better. I mean, it's changed a lot now, but at the time it was very heavy on the diagnostic piece and there wasn't like a huge therapeutic piece. So really it was a process of elimination. Like what don't I like? What don't I see myself um, doing? OBGYN was great, but it was it was like too much like babies just popping out <laughs> all the time. Yeah. It was a little unpredictable. You know, I like a more controlled environment. So it was, it was really this process of elimination. And I think like many things, right, once you put your nickel down and you start to become experienced and you start to learn a little, you like it, right? All of a sudden it's like, hey, I know a lot about this field and it appeals to me. But really, Joe, it wasn't until after, after medical school, which is four years, after residency, which is three years, I did a year of chief residency, gastroenterology fellowship, another couple of years. It wasn't until I came to Washington in 1997 to join the faculty at Georgetown as like a grown-up practicing gastroenterologist that I really started to think about the central role of the gut. And, And I think more importantly for me, I really started to have an awakening about what people can do for gut health that is completely within their control. You know, so beyond a test that I do and a medication that I prescribe and a recommendation that I make... There's so much that you can do for gut health. I mean, it is very operator dependent and that's because it's so dependent on, you know, what you put in really determines what comes out and sort of what goes on in between on those 30 feet of digestive superhighway. So I love that it was this very sort of patient, empowering field, if you will. And I could, I could guide people and say, hey, you know, you could do X, Y, and Z and they would go and do it. And they'd come back and they were like, Guess what? Like, my gallbladder's better, or my colitis is better, or I don't have reflux anymore. And so I love that fact that the therapeutic piece could really be put in the hands of the patient. And that was, to me, that was the most surprising thing, really. And it was something that actually happened kind of later in my career as I got more interested in the more integrative piece of gastroenterology. And not that I'm not interested in colonoscopies and CAT scans and, you know, that stuff, but when I really began to explore this concept of food as medicine and how do you approach inflammation, and I really started to see, like, wow, this stuff really works, because I went to medical school at Columbia, which is fantastic, and I was there for eight years, four years of medical school, year of internship, two years of residency, a year as chief resident. And it is an incredible institution. But like most medical schools, most hospitals, they're really focused on one question, and that's what. What? They're focused on what this is. Like, what do you have? Is it Crohn's? Mm -hmm. Is it colitis? Is it diverticulitis? You know, is it colon cancer? Making the diagnosis and then implementing this therapeutic pathway, which usually is going to involve medication or a procedure or something. But the big, really important question is the why, right? So why do you have Crohn's? Why do you have colitis? Why do you have diverticulitis? Why do you have colon cancer? And that question really began to preoccupy me, but it, it just wasn't. And, and of course, it's changing. I finished medical school 30 years ago in 1991, so a lot has changed in terms of how we really do medical education, that whole process. And I think there is a lot more curiosity around root cause now than there was when I was in medical school. But that was that, you know, to, this is a very long answer to your question. No, that's
1: great. But yes. that
0: is really the why piece and really starting to discover like, Oh, and, and really my practice has been like my lab. Right. And I'm so grateful to the thousands of patients who've kind of let me tinker and trusted me to tinker with their gut health and to see like, Oh, when we do this, this happens. And when we do that, that happens and to really start to see the cause and effect. And I think, I mean, you see that in a lot of organs, but you see it really dramatically. And really quickly in the gut. And so that's an exciting piece that I just really wasn't aware of as a, as a younger doctor.
1: Yeah, no, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Uh, you wrote a book called The Bloat Cure. And kind of piggybacking on your answer, are there, are there common things that you see, and this is a, a bit of a loaded question, too, that are traps that people fall into when it, when it comes to having issues with their glut, w- w- I'm sorry with their gut, or with bloating or just having issues? because I know you're, you're, the bloat cure talks about 101 of them and I read them all, but they're so vastly different. It's like how do yeah. you narrow it down to, okay, what are some practical things that I could do to today? Um, and I was just curious, is there common ones or are each one of us completely different?
0: Yeah, and I'm in the kind of odd position of saying, oh, don't read Bloat Cure, read Gutless, my first book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So
0: um, the first book, Gutless, was really written to be a medical detective because for exactly the reason you're describing, Joe, I was seeing patient after patient coming in and saying, you know, I'm really bloated, I'm having digestive distress, but my doctor said to just take Nexium, or my doctor said I'm stressed out, or they did a CAT scan and it was fine, so they said it's, you know, nothing to worry about. And I wanted to really put the tools in patients' hands again to say, like, you got to be a medical detective and let's, let's go down this road and figure out what it is. And the bloat cure is sort of the cliff notes for <laughs> the list, right? 101 things that bloat you, the A to Z. But really, it's very helpful to think in terms of systems. And so the first system that I like to point people in the direction of is an external system that's not in our body at all, but that's the medicine cabinet that I sometimes affectionately, unaffectionately, refer to as the menace cabinet because so much of what can be going wrong in the gut has to do with something that you're taking, a medication that you're taking usually for something else. So antibiotics, for example, huge bugaboo when it comes to the gut because they wipe out tons of your healthy bacteria. Acid-blocking drugs, proton pump inhibitors, among some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world, they change the pH of the gut from acidic to alkali. And it's acidic for a reason, right? It's not just like you weren't made with acid in your stomach because of some fatal error. There's a really, whoever designed, however that evolved, it was done with some thought. And stomach acid is there for some really important reasons. Number one, it provides the ideal pH for the digestive enzymes to work at, to be active at. So when you turn off that acid pump and now you have an alkaline pH, you completely mess up the ability of those enzymes to work for optimal absorption and assimilation of nutrients. So number one, there's a digestion piece. Number two, there's the microbiome, the trillions of organisms that call our bodies home, mostly our gut. And we're designed to have a gradient from mouth to anus. So as you go, we talked about the different parts of the gastrointestinal tract. As you go from the top, from the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, all the way down to the bottom, to the colon, and out the very end of the anus, the amount of bacteria you have throughout your colon changes. It changes dramatically. It shifts from minimal amounts higher up to a lot in the colon. And again, that gradient is there for a reason. It's not an accident. And so when you change a pH from acidic to alkali, you make the upper GI tract way more hospitable to bacteria and you get bacterial overgrowth and you completely mess up that gradient. And long-term acid suppression can be as damaging as long-term antibiotics. And we saw that with a study published in the journal Gut a few years ago that showed that chronic proton pump inhibitor users who are using these drugs for months and months at a time have... a uh, the, the the only like really apt way to say it, they have a messed up microbiome. And can it can I lead pause, to problems like I, SIBO.
1: Can I pause you there for a second? Sure. So when you say uh, when you're mentioning those those drugs, what what are they? Are they over-the-counter drugs like PepsiD, like things like that? No, PepsiD I mean, is
0: an H2 blocker, a histamine blocker. Proton pump inhibitors, the classic one would be Nexium. The generic is Omeprazole. So some of them are over the counter. Omeprazole, Prilosec are over the counter in a generic form, I believe. But it would be Nexium, Protonix, um, Prevacid, Prilosec. There's, you know, seven Got or it. eight of them. And they are amongst the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world because they really work. They're very good at shutting off acid. And when you turn off that acid pump, guess what? You can have a porta house at 10 o'clock at night and, you know, fries and a shake and you feel fine. You're not having reflux. But that doesn't mean that that's a good idea, right? Your reflux, as I remind people, is your body's way of saying, knock, knock. I don't like what you're doing. Reflux is your body's way of telling you having a porterhouse steak and fries and a milkshake at 10 o'clock at night is a terrible idea (laughs) because the, the digestive process, the contractility of the gut is tied to the light-dark cycle, which means that once the sun sets, which is pretty early these days in DC, now that's around 6.30ish, it means that once the sun sets, your digestive tract also goes to sleep, and it's not active. So when you dump in all these calories and all this rich food late at night, you can't digest it. It's not even moving through efficiently, and it comes up and it causes reflux. So that is a really important negative feedback loop. And when you suppress that negative feedback loop, you know, and you just carry on doing all these things. The example I like to use is, what if you didn't get a hangover? What if you could drink as much as you want and not get a hangover? Many people would die from alcohol poisoning. A hangover is your body's way of saying, eh, don't do that again. That sucked. You did too much of that, right? So, or or if you, you know, go out and run 50 miles and you get really sore muscles saying like, maybe you should run 10 miles and work your way up to 50. So your body has your back in terms of this feedback. And sometimes it's positive feedback. Like it's the feedback you get when you have, I tend to go to bed really late. I'm bad about sleep. And when I go to bed early, kind of on time and have like a good night's sleep and I wake up and I'm like, oh, I feel great. I'm alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. That's a positive feedback, right? And then you want to do it again. But ignoring these feedback loops and really that is the heart of, Healthcare, really, self-care. And for me, it's really trying to explain to my patients, like your gallbladder is giving you feedback. It's telling you you're eating too much dairy and too much fat and you need to, you know, really cut the fat in your diet. Reflux, you're eating late meals. You're eating them late at night. You're overfilling your stomach. You're getting reflux. So there are some diseases that just kind of fall out of the sky, right? But a lot of the things that we perceive, diverticulosis, not enough fiber in the diet. And so you get these potholes in the colon because your colon is having to push really hard to push out these small, stingy stools that you get when you're primarily eating a bunch of meat. So there are all these examples of things that happen that are cause and effect. And it's really neat to be able to connect the dots for people and explain to them, like, you're having this because you're doing this. And if you do it differently, this thing could go away.
1: So are there common things that or like your common checklist. So so if I if if I'm your patient and I'm say I'm experiencing bloating, it's not bad. I just feel like I'm always bloated. Is there a common checklist that you go down and say, are you having dairy? Are you eating Absolutely. at night? Are you Absolutely? What, what is that checklist? So
0: let's do it. Let's start with a medicine cabinet. So I would say, are you taking a supplement, for example, that has iron in it or something with calcium that could be constipating you and slowing you down. Magnesium, the opposite, that helps move things through. So I look in your medicine cabinet and say, you know, is there a supplement? Is there a prescription medication that you're taking? Some antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs can also cause constipation and bloating. So I take a good look at the medicine cabinet. And that would include prescription, over-the-counter, as well as supplements. The next thing I would go to is anatomy. So anatomically, for you as a male you are in good shape in terms of a lot of the anatomical things that could cause bloating because you have a male colon. So let's just spend a minute on this whole idea of the voluptuous venous colon. (laughs) Women have a longer colon than men. And we think that is so that the main function of the colon is to absorb fluid out of the digestive tract. So when the products of digestion go from the end of the small intestine, remember dogs jump in the ileum, to the colon, they're really liquid. And then a lot of that water gets reabsorbed through the lining of the colon and you end up with a nice, ideally a nice formed chocolatey brown stool at the end. So in women, the colon is a little bit longer and we think that is so that we can absorb more fluid out of the digestive tract to maintain the amniotic fluid for childbearing. And this is true whether you are a childbearing woman or not. So women have a longer colon. And what that means is that we have more twists and turns to our colon. We also have reproductive organs that are kind of occupying the same space as a colon. So we have a uterus. We have fallopian tubes. We have ovaries. You guys just have a little bitty prostate gland, right? We have a lot of reproductive hardware in there. And women also have a wider pelvis. We have what's called a gynecoid pelvis. And again, that is to allow more room. You know, it's not like we're here to reproduce, right? Whether you choose to reproduce or not from a Darwinian evolutionary point of view, that's why we're here. And so we have a wider pelvis, again, to allow more room for childbirth. And what that means is that in the female colon, more of the Colon and digestive tract is down in the pelvis and it's all tangled up essentially. It takes me, Joe, about three times as long to do a colonoscopy in a woman compared to a man Hmm. on average. Like, I and I have a lot of patients in my practice. So, for my male patients, I'm always like, woohoo, this is gonna be quick by comparison (laughs) because you know, you just don't have all those twists and turns. And then the last thing is men have higher testosterone levels and that means a firmer abdominal wall. So even if you're a man with a big bare belly, it still means that underneath that belly, you have a tight Spanx. And woman, even if you're like super fit, like you could be Jillian Michaels with a you know six pack, but it means that your abdominal wall is typically not as strong because of the difference in testosterone levels. And so if your Spanx is a little stretched out, it means that there's just more opportunity for things to bulge and bloat. And that's why women tend to have more bloating. Um, And even again, a man can have a big gut, but he's typically not as bloated. So those are some of the anatomical differences. And then of course, in women, we can have uterine fibroids that can be big. You can have fibroids that are big like grapefruits in your uterus and they're pressing on your colon. You can have a uterus that tips, what's called a retroverted uterus or an antiverted uterus and it can tip and it can press on the colon. And there are other pelvic floor disorders. The pelvic floor is like a hammock, and all these organs are resting in it: the digestive tract, the reproductive organs, and so things can get a little bit saggy and start to weigh and press on each other. You can have rectoceles. I mean, there's a. If you want an exhaustive source on this, like read Gutless. There's a whole section about all these various things that can um, all the anatomical reasons. Now, in men, you can have anatomical reasons, too, not the ones that involve uterus and ovaries, but you can have, for example, diverticulosis, which is very much an equal opportunity employer. So you can have these big potholes in the colon and the stool gets stuck in them. It's sort of the inverse of a polyp. So it's a it's a pocket in the colon and stool can get stuck in there and that can create a feeling of incomplete evacuation and bloating because... While the stool is sitting in there, it's also getting fermented and producing a lot of gas. And a polyp is the opposite. That's like a lollipop sticking up out of the lining. So, you know, in men, you can have diverticulosis, which would typically start to form around your 40s. And that could be a reason. So we talked about medicine cabinet. We talked about anatomical, hormonal. So in women, we think about things like estrogen dominance and what's going on with progesterone levels. But in men too, you could have things like undiagnosed thyroid disease. Hypothyroidism, and underactive thyroid can slow things down and bloat you, and overactive thyroid can sort of do the opposite, and so there's sort of the what's going on hormonally. And then there's functional reasons to do with motility. There's some conditions. Diabetes, for example, and even pre-diabetes can do this, can slow down the nerves that control the emptying of the gut. So that can be a reason that things are slowed down. There's a condition called gastroparesis, where the nerves affecting the stomach are emptied with diabetes. There are these other more sort of functional reasons to do with gut motility. And then, of course, there's a whole gut-brain connection, which is fascinating. And you probably know that somewhere around 70 to 80% of serotonin, the feel-good hormone, is actually made in the gut. There's this gut-brain connection and communication through the vagus nerve And so what's going on in your brain in terms of mood and so on can affect what's going on in the gut. It can affect gut secretion, gut motility, digestive enzyme release, and what's going on in your gut, the health of the microbiome, et cetera, can affect the neurotransmitter production, and that can affect mood and everything else. So, you know, the gut is central. It's, um, you know, and these are some of the things that can affect it. But probably the biggest category when we're talking about bloating is going to be food, You know, those things are really important, but um, food. So are you lactose intolerant? Are you gluten intolerant? Are you fructose intolerant? Are you eating too much animal protein and fat that's just slowing everything down? Um, Are you eating large amounts of fiber in one sitting that are getting stuck in some of the turns in your colon? So really looking at the diet. and, And I'm a big believer in a more intuitive approach to food. Like I'm, most of the sensitivity testing, I tell my patients, they come in with, these reams of tests and I'm like, look, this stuff is not worth the paper it's printed on. This particular, you know, telling you like you're allergic to blackberries and 50 different things that you eat all the time and never have a problem with. So a lot of the food sensitivity testing just is really not valid. But um, there are a lot of things that you can do with elimination diets and just sort of paying attention to things. And, you know, when you think about programs like Whole30 and different things, I think for some of these programs, it's not so much like doing that and eating like that long-term, but just taking out some things and seeing like, okay, how do I feel when I take dairy out? How do I feel when I take sugar out? I'm not such a fan of taking the grains out because you really need those microbiota-accessible carbohydrates to feed your gut bacteria, but, you know, play around, like eat more plants, take out some of the meat. All of us could benefit from taking out sugar, so... I think that is, you know, those, some of these regimens that give people a more structured way of eating are a helpful way to see how you feel, but it should always be about, again, that feedback that your body's giving you. Like all of a sudden, are you like, you know, having champion poos in the bathroom because <laughs> you did something like you took out something or you added something in and, and that's really, you know, the most important feedback.
1: Let's just say that you Uh, you sampled a hundred of your patients and they eliminated something from their diet. Would, would dairy be amongst those top few, or is it just all over the place or is there like a common set?
0: Dairy would definitely be high. And, you know, if you have a cow in your backyard and you're able to, you know, get unpasteurized stuff safely, but dairy is a really processed food. So, so let's even think about it more intuitively. You know, what, what is cow's milk? It's something that a postpartum cow makes to feed her young, right? And to get a itty-bitty baby calf to a really big cow really quickly. So no matter how you try and modify it and make it low-fat, etc., dairy is primarily made up of sugars, and it is a very nutrient-dense, calorie-dense food that's designed to grow an animal very quickly. So we'll just start with that. The second thing is it's it's designed for baby cows. So as human adults, the idea that we're kind of suckling a postpartum cow, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense, right? And that's why about 70% of the world's population is lactose intolerant because we lose the enzyme called lactase and it's located in the small intestine along the brush border. And you can lose it if you get a bad gastrointestinal infection. You can lose it. Certain ethnic groups tend to have more of it versus others. But we'll typically lose it. Most people will lose most of it, if not all of it, by the time we're adults because we're really not meant to be drinking the milk from including our own mother's breast milk. I mean, by all means, nurse until your kid is a few years old. In some cultures, they nurse kids until five or six or seven years old, and that's Mm -hmm. wonderful. But there's no culture where they're nursing, you know, a 43-year-old man, right? That just, (laughs) that doesn't exist. And so when you think about it from that point of view, it's like, hmm. And then, again, keeping in mind, like dairy, it's milk sugars. And so it is, you know, it's kind of like a less sweet form of ice cream, And when you pasteurize it, you're really not getting those health benefits that you would of dairy as a food that really has live bacteria in it. That's pretty hard to get these days because it is pasteurized. And then maybe they put in one culture of one particular strain of bacteria, which is a lot less helpful than sort of a, you know, a lot of the original studies in Eastern Europe and in Romania with the raw milk. That was a very different undertaking. You know, it's like comparing people in Tibet. Who are living at high altitude and walking up and down mountains eating yak butter and then putting oil in your coffee hair? it's just not the same thing right
1: right now that makes a lot of sense what what are some of the other foods that are getting people like dairy
0: so artificial sweeteners are probably one of the worst things you can put in your body and again common sense you cannot get something for nothing so it may say zero calories But remember that insulin is released not in response to calories. Insulin is released in response to sweetness. And artificial sweeteners are plenty sweet. In fact, they're sweeter than natural sugar a lot of the time. So when you're having a soda and it normally, let's say, would be 100 calories or 110 calories, but it says zero calories, that might be true when you burn it in a, you know, the thermogenic instrument you use to derive what the calorogenic contribution is, that may be true. But when you drink that diet soda, your body is responding to the sweetness and it's releasing insulin. And it's that release of insulin that causes the calories you ingest to be stored as fat. And so artificial sweeteners and diet foods in general are one of the biggest contributors to obesity. And every time I see somebody drinking a diet soda, I literally want to smack it out of their hand. And not that I would advocate drinking a regular soda either, but this idea that, you know, it's somehow like you're getting sweetness for nothing. But even beyond the insulin effect, artificial sweeteners, the chemicals themselves, can really mess up your microbiome. They change, they, they adjust, they kill off a lot of the healthy bacteria. So there have been some really great articles recently just pointing that out and pointing out that they can, they're microbial disruptors. And so that's another really important reason not to have them. And uh, again, you know, if it seems too good to be true, like zero calorie chocolate or, you know, huge candy bar, it's 10 calories. Mm, Not so much.
1: What about uh, alcohol consumption?
0: Yeah, that's a tricky one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Alcohol is, uh, remember, alcohol is metabolized to acetaldehyde which is a first cousin of formaldehyde. So alcohol is a toxin, but in in reasonable amounts, we can handle it, right? So if you are a healthy person, you have a healthy liver, um, you are probably going to be able to tolerate reasonable amounts of alcohol. And, you know, what's a reasonable amount? Well, if you look at the studies that link alcohol to carcinogenesis and to other sort of bad things, it, in women, it's six or fewer drinks per week. When I ask my college students, you know, how much they drink and, and a little behind the scenes tip in medicine, when we ask people how much they drink, we double it. And when we ask them how much they exercise, how many days, we half it. So when people say they exercise six days a week, we write down three days a week. And when they say they drink three Drinks a week, we write down six drinks a week. That's good. Because that's how we sort of get to a more accurate place, yeah. typically. I mean, we don't really write that down, but that's typically what we're thinking. So in women, six or fewer drinks per week, which means if you have one glass of wine a day, seven days a week, you're already over, right? and it's it's a little bit more in men, but there's no i mean this idea that alcohol is sort of a health food uh, is a little bit of magical thinking. Alcohol can be tolerated in small amounts with somebody again who has a healthy liver, a healthy immune system, et cetera but But it is a toxin and remember remember that before we had antibiotics, we had alcohol to kill bacteria. Even now, when you go to get your blood drawn, they put the little alcohol swab on your skin, right, and that's to clean off germs kill bacteria so when you're ingesting alcohol it is disrupting the microbiome minimally so if it is small amounts of alcohol but you know the the data during the pandemic this sort of alcohol creep if you will has been really startling and i you know i have a patient whose wife died from alcoholism during the pandemic who was a young woman in her 40s who i didn't even really realize had such an issue with alcohol. I mean, they were both very sort of joie de vivre people and I, you know, knew they sort of liked to eat well and drink a lot, but hmm. she died from from cirrhosis of the liver from, you know, the alcohol consumption spiraled out of control and she was in her early 40s and it was a surprise again because this is a very functional, healthy-appearing woman.
1: Wow, that's crazy. I haven't heard of uh someone who is that young dying from something like that that would otherwise appear healthy? Is that, is that genetic-based, or is it really just behavioral?
0: Well, you know, it can be a little bit of both, but it's mostly behavioral. I mean, there are definitely people who are sort of more fast metabolizers of alcohol, and there are people, you know, depending on your complement of enzymes, how you break it down. I mean, some people flush a lot when they drink, et cetera. But it's, it's mostly consumption and It is steady consumption over a long period of time. So she'd been drinking a lot since her late teens, and the consumption just increased. So I think, you know, in the later years, I think she was probably drinking, you know, a couple bottles of wine and just developing the chronic liver disease. It's kind of like smoking, right? So not everybody who smokes is going to die from lung cancer. And there's a range, like some people smoke two packs a day and they never get lung cancer. And some people smoke half a pack a day and get lung cancer. So there's not like a hundred percent predictability for these models. Some of it is genetics, as you said. Some of it is what's the background noise in their body, right? What other diseases are they dealing with? And some of it is just sort of bad luck.
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I want to get to in a few minutes... um COVID, the flu season that we're headed into, and gut health and what we can do. But separate from that, if someone's listening to this and they want to start taking better care of their gut, their microbiome, what are some of the first things you can do? Uh, the elimination diet aside, of course, and yeah. taking things away and not doing certain things is, 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 It feels like that's number one, but what are some things you can put in your body to develop a healthier gut?
0: Yeah, so I love to talk about my one, two, three rule, which is just increasing the amount of dietary fiber. Dietary fiber is key because when you eat indigestible plant fiber, it's indigestible because it's really there to be digested by our gut bacteria. And gut bacteria, like my absolute favorite bacteria called Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, F. prosnitzii for short, because we're kind of on a first name basis, F. prosnitzii and I, <laughs> um, that, that bacteria is one of the class of bacteria that ferment dietary fiber to create something called short chain fatty acids. So you may have heard of butyric acid, propionic acid, etc. And short-chain fatty acids are really important, not just for gut health, but for immune health. They also keep the lining of our gastrointestinal tract intact so that viruses and bacteria can't get through. And they help to modulate the immune system and the immune response. So short-chain fatty acids help to determine that your immune response is adequate enough to get rid of something like SARS-CoV-2, but not so overblown that you end up with something called cytokine storm. And an overblown immune response, then you destroy a lot of your own tissue with the virus, and maybe, you know, your cytokine storm takes you out too with the virus. So it creates that kind of Goldilocks immune response, right? Not, you know, strong enough to get rid of the virus, but not so strong that it's also getting rid of you. And so if you're not eating a lot of dietary fiber, you're not producing a lot of short chain fatty acids. This is definitely not something where you can take a short chain fatty acid supplement, and it just doesn't work that way. So if I could say just one thing, it would be to add more plant fiber in the form of vegetables. So my one, two, three rule is one vegetable in the morning, two at lunch, three at dinner. I usually flip it. I'm, I'm not, my husband's a really good vegetable eater and I struggle more. So I usually do a green smoothie in the morning and I put kale, celery, spinach, bunch of greens, mango, coconut water, put as much fruit in as you need to make it taste good. I use a little coconut water for the base. And I suck that down and it's equivalent of like three or four servings of vegetables. And then I'll, you know, usually try and get a salad in at some point during the day, I try to do raw vegetables just because they're a little more enzymatically active. So that's why the raw veggies in the smoothie plus like some sort of raw salad. Um, But that is, you know, I tell people, look, if if you want to have a couple slices of pepperoni pizza, have it, but just have a salad with it. You know, if you're going to have a burger I mean, don't have it all the time, but have a big salad with it. Like sub out the fries for for a salad or sub out the burger for the salad and have fries in a salad. Just eat more plants is really such a game changer for the microbiome. And what's really interesting is when you look at vegans who are not good plant eaters, what I call like the Pop-Tart vegans who are eating a lot of processed carbohydrate, like they're not eating animal protein often for ethical reasons, which are completely legitimate. But they're also not eating a lot of plants. And so, you know, again, they're eating like the pizza with a fake cheese and a lot of cereal and a lot of pasta. They have the same high rates for a lot of the diseases that are associated with a disrupted microbiome as the hardcore meat eaters. And then when we look at flexitarians who are really, you know, eat, A little bit of everything, but flexitarians who are more plant based, but who leave a little room on their plate for some animal protein, but are eating a lot of plants, they have the same low rates of these diseases and conditions as the vegans who are eating all plants. So, you know, I I have a lot of friends in the in this sort of plant-based health world who I have a great deal of respect for. So people like Dr. Neil Barnard, who runs a physician committee for responsible medicine and Michael Gregor and Caldwell Esselstein and Will Bullswitch and all these folks. And they're really wonderful folks. Um, but I and, you know, being completely plant-based is it's aspirational for me. Right. I'm not quite there. But what I want to tell people is like that is a wonderful place to be because it's great for the planet. It's great for your health and all of that. But you can achieve incredible, bountiful improvements in your health just by eating more plants and still eating some animal protein if that's what you want to do. So you don't really have to go all the way. But just think about like if you're having some eggs in the morning, like throw some spinach in there or just munch on a carrot or eat a celery stick at lunch You know, think about doing a salad or making some steamed veggies or something. And then at dinner, if you're typically having a protein, a starch, a veg, add a side salad to that or do two veg, do broccoli and green beans and do a side salad. And one of the things, Joe, that they have have found recently in terms of looking at the health of the microbiome is it's not just eating vegetables every day. It's really the variety of plants that you're eating So the magic number is around 30, eating 30 different plants a week. But, you know, you get credit for different, like if you're eating oats, if you're eating nuts, if you're eating seeds, you get credit for that. So it's a really cool thing to do. Start on a Monday and go all the way through Sunday and write down every time you eat a different plant and and see, right? We've done it in our household. My husband, of course, he's mostly vegan. So he came out on top. Um, but it was better than I thought because I was like, oh, I ate almonds and cashews and cranberries and blueberries. And, you know, when I added it all up, it's like, "Hmm." but the thing I like about that is it really forces you to eat a variety. And that's important because all the different plants have different nutrients. So asparagus is great, but asparagus only has what asparagus has in it. Whereas cabbage has all kinds of other things in it that are also really helpful too. So the variety is is really key. The variety in the plants that you're having. And that that's the biggest thing I would say. If you drink soda, just stop immediately. Like there is <laughs> that's the worst thing to put in your body is a soda. So that's just you should just stop that.
1: So so what about things that have probiotics in them, like kombucha and the variety yeah. of stuff that you now see at, at the market? Um, advertising that it's going to help your gut, your microbiome.
0: Yeah, the fermented foods. So the kimchi and the sauerkraut are great, right? Because that a fermented food is a combination of probiotics, which is a live bacteria that are formed, that develop in the fermentation process, as well as prebiotics, which is a fibrous stuff to feed the bacteria. So if you think of something like sauerkraut, when you ferment cabbage, you create a lot of lactobacillus, probiotic, but the cabbage itself is an indigestible fiber that feeds bacteria, prebiotic. So that's a powerhouse prebiotic, probiotic. But when you get into like the probiotic dairy and even kombucha, there's really not a health advantage. There's really not enough live bacteria in that. And so, you know, kombucha, if it's a low sugar kombucha, it's a healthier option than a soda for sure. But, you know, look at the sugar content, look at the caffeine content and, um, you know, see what you're having. But the idea that you're going to, you know, transform your microbiome through drinking kombucha is a little bit of magical thinking. You can transform your microbiome by eating sauerkraut and kimchi for sure. And just food grown in soil, you know, an apple that's grown locally at a local orchard where they're not using a lot of pesticides and things will have a lot of microbes in it, Because, you know, that's where we get the microbes from, from the soil as adults. Once we've passed through the birth canal and gotten our founding species from our mother, if we were lucky enough to have that happen to us, then it's really from the food and the environment. So eating locally grown food with dirt on it, I, I'm always suspicious if I go into the supermarket and I see the carrots are all you know 4.2 inches long exactly perfectly uniform orange color yeah i'm always looking around like where's the dirt like i don't see any dirt on this where did this come from <laughs> do this was this grown in a factory so i'm a big fan of the farmers markets and supporting the locally grown stuff that was actually grown in soil
1: if you're not privy to be near a farmers market or we're in the chicago area you're in dc we're heading into the winter there's less of that Going on, where do you source your fruits and vegetables from typically?
0: Yeah, the the farmers market I go to in DC, the one down here in Dupont Circle, a couple miles from my house, is actually year round, but Ooh, the pickings nice. get really slim in the winter. And we really try and go and support the farmers, but you know, like you can get some apples now, and maybe, yeah. maybe that's it. So, but that's sort of the natural cycle, right? So the stone fruit are gone, the berries are gone, all of that, and it's mostly apples. But the the greens change too. So there's like more chard available. There's no spinach. So it kind of forces you to eat more seasonally, which there's, there's a lot of advantages to that because you're getting more variety. And there are a lot of companies that offer CSAs, community, community supported agriculture. There's one called From the Farmer that I love because they use all small family owned farms. I think all the farms are 25 acres or less than From the Farmer. And, um, and you know, like you might have to figure out what to do with rutabago,
1: yeah, you Which can, is kind of cool because I don't know what
0: to do with rutabaga other than maybe make a pie. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it forces you like turnip greens, like it. Or fennel. You have to sort of yeah. get creative. <laughs>
1: yeah. What's that? Yeah. Or fennel, I was saying, you know, <laughs> just like.
0: Oh, something yeah. really good with fennel. A friend of mine made it when I went to her house. It was so good. So I would typically put fennel in my chicken soup, but she did this thing. Yeah. She chopped up the fennel, she took some baby grape tomatoes, cut them in half. And she just put some olive oil, salt, and pepper on it. She roasted it in the oven. It was delicious. And then she put Mm. it in the salad. It literally took five minutes. So chopped up fennel, baby grape tomatoes, olive oil, salt, and pepper. And then she put it in a salad. But I've done it and put it on top of salmon. And it's really good. Really good.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. I'm definitely going to try it. I know we've we've subscribed to boxes in the past, and we get – fruit and vegetables in and we don't know what to do with them so that's a that's a great tip so i, I noticed you were really going toward the vegetable ron i hear that all the time eat eat more vegetables that's becoming very uh a very um common statement and it, and it makes a ton of sense what about the fruit side though because fruit has a ton of fiber too
0: Yeah, fruit fruit is great. Fruit is very maligned. You know, people worry about the sugar, but remember when you eat fruit, you're eating it with the fiber and the fiber is slowing down the absorption of the sugar, which is why eating an apple is a completely different thing from having apple juice. When you drink apple juice, it's just that shot of liquid sugar and you get a big spike in your insulin levels. When you eat an apple, the sugar is with the fiber and that's absorbed very slowly. So I, I mean, my rule of thumb is anything that comes from the ground is a okay. I happen to not personally like mushrooms. I'm trying to change. I don't that either. So me too. To
1: yeah. Yeah,
0: it's a whole consistency thing. <laughs> I, I say make, I have a mental allergy. Have you tried mushroom tea?
1: I have. Yeah, I was turned on to a brand. Uh, elix- it was some kind of elixir tea from from Rich Roll. He actually sent it to me. He was one of our <laughs> guests on the podcast and. And I, awesome. I tried it, and I, I had never – I haven't tried mushrooms in years because I just don't like them. But I tried it in the tea because I don't have that tex- that texture then, obviously, and it didn't taste like how mushrooms smell to me. So I'm totally – I'm not opposed to it, but I, I still can't stand the texture of mushrooms.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way. And you can make um, – you know, it's actually on our gutless site. We have a recipe for this, super easy to make. And it's in the first book, gutless, where you just take these mushrooms and you chop them up and boil them and, and make a tea. And it's it's really simple. And mushrooms are very medicinal, but yeah. anything that comes from the ground. So like eat a white potato, eat a sweet, you know, have it all, eat berries, fruit in, in abundance, but think about how you, what you do to them. So, you know, don't take a potato and like just kill it with a bottle of olive oil and fry it and make it less healthy. But, you know, if you want to have some mashed potatoes and, you know, go easy on what you put in the potatoes or roasted potatoes, um, anything from the ground and try and have it in the purest form. So what I tell people is like, OK, if you look at a potato and you, you know, get a potato from the farmer's market or even the supermarket, it's clear that this is a potato. It came out of the ground. When you eat a potato chip, there's no potato chip plant that's from a factory. So trying to distinguish between factory and farm. You know, applesauce factory, apple juice factory, apples farm, potato chips factory. And and so that's just that basic delineation, right? So even though something might have started out healthy, it might not end up healthy. Like lentil chips, not really. It's chips, and they're very processed, and they're made in the factory. And that's very different from buying some dried lentils and cooking them.
1: Just, I mean, it's a random question. So what if you take kale um that's maybe getting to the a place where it's getting old like can you is there any harm in cooking that and make is that it's probably not as as nutrient dense but you bake it and make your own kale chips
0: those are kale chips are great but but kale chips that you make at home is different from like a shelf stable kale chip right no kale chips are great and Kale, I I have to admit, there's one place in DC, there's this restaurant in Georgetown called Leopold's and they make the best kale salad. And I think they like rub the kale with vinegar. They do something to the kale to make it really good. And it's got like pine nuts and garlic chips, but it's hard for me to make my kale salad taste really good, but I'm all about the kale in the smoothies. And uh, similarly, kale chips are like a great way to, and you know, to, to eat more kale and sure, put some olive oil and salt and pepper, whatever you need to on that. So, so that's different from, um, you know, like frying potatoes and a lot of oil and stuff. I think, I think a little olive oil and something is fine. And again, you know, Michael Pollan in in his great book in defense of food said, you know, it was summarized in seven words on the cover, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I would add my three little words to that, which is eat more vegetables and it is just astounding when you look at everything from heart disease to diabetes to the immune system to autoimmune disease, the impact that increasing your dietary fiber has, it is unbelievable. For And that's with if you do nothing else, if you somehow don't get rid of the soda, but please do, and you're still having your 10 o'clock port-a-house and you're doing everything the same, but you say, okay, I'm going to have a green smoothie every day, or I'm going to have a salad every day can make such a huge difference.
1: Oh, I love that advice. And it's so, I love how you just speak at such a practical level is like, look what you're eating. Where is it sourced from? Is it coming from the ground? Is it coming from a bag? I am just, I mean, it makes a ton of sense when you think about it in that way. Like even that going back to the dairy example, like what's the purpose of milk, you know, I just starting <laughs> to think about those things. Um, so, so I, I want to get into quickly, Covid, the flu, all of all of the stuff that we're now kind of surrounded by, um, and we have been for the last couple of years, and the connection between that and and gut health.
0: So I'll tell you that book number four, which I'm actually not supposed to be talking about because my publishers don't want me talking about it yet, but book number four, so I'm not going to tell you the name or anything, but it's coming out next year, is all about that and. Really, I, you know, I had had a conversation with my wonderful agent who did the other three books with me about last fall, about like writing editorial or something. And then at the beginning of this year in January, there was an article that was published about the predictive value of the microbiome with COVID and that when you look specifically at what's going on in people's gut with the gut bacteria and remember i talked about fecalibacterium prausnitzii f prausnitzii my favorite bacteria so high levels of f prausnitzii were very predictive for good outcomes in covid and low levels of f prausnitzii were sort of poorly predictive and then another bacteria, Enterococcus faecalis, which we sometimes call strep faecalis, just to be confusing, um, high levels of Enterococcus faecalis, which is sort of like a less desirable bacteria, right, were very predictive for poor outcomes. So high Enterococcus faecalis, low faecal bacteria and prosnitiae predicted poor outcome, respiratory failure and death with 92% accuracy. And what's amazing about that is that's way more accurate than looking at demographics Mm -hmm. like age and gender, comorbidities like lung disease, heart disease, cancer, et cetera. So really looking at the microbiome was the most predictive way to tell somebody's outcome. And for a lot of what we have been seeing, you know, like somebody will tell me that, oh, somebody they know, you know, died from COVID, which is always tragic, and, um, oh, they seem perfectly healthy. And sometimes they are. That happens. But so often when you really delve into their history, it's like, oh, they took tons of antibiotics, wiping out gut bacteria. They were on an acid block or, or they had an underlying autoimmune disease or there was something that had disrupted their microbiome. So that microbial predictor. And I tell you, when that article came out, I literally was like, OK, I've got to write another book. Like people mm-hmm. have to understand that gut health is not about having a six pack, a flat belly, or incredible poos like that's all good too, right? By all means, like you will find those things it can get rid of your bloating and you can have stool nirvana and that's fantastic but ultimately, it is this deeper connection to the immune system and to immune health and you literally this is a hand and glove relationship I don't know if most people know but The trillions of bacteria that call our guts home are located in the lumen, kind of in the inside of the GI tract. And then you have the little villi, and there is literally just a one cell layer between what's going on in the lumen and the inside of the body. Because when you think about it, Joe, when something is in your GI tract, it's not actually in your body. The GI tract is a hollow passageway from the mouth to the anus that's hollow, and everything that's in there is actually in our external environment. And that thin gut lining, that epithelial barrier that's just one cell thick, is what separates this external environment floating around in the middle of my body from all my precious internal organs, from my liver and my gallbladder and my spleen and my heart and my lungs and my kidneys. And it's a selective barrier. It's permeable. It's like a fishing net with very fine holes. Mm -hmm. And the gut bacteria help determine what goes through, right? So like when the food gets digested, we want those micronutrients to be able to get through, but we don't want SARS-CoV-2 getting through and we don't want toxins getting through. And what helps the immune system? So you have the trillions of bacteria on one side of this thin lining, and then you have the immune cells on the other side And it's really that interaction with the gut bacteria that determine the immune response. And so if you don't have a healthy gut and your microbiome is disrupted, chances are your epithelial barrier is gonna be disrupted, viral particles are gonna get in, chances are your immune response is gonna be disrupted and you're not gonna mount a sufficient immune response or you're gonna have an overblown immune response that's gonna make you really sick. So it really, when we talk about immune health, 80% of the immune system is actually physically in the gut, right up there against the lining. And what we're really looking for is immune equilibrium. I like to call it kind of the Goldilocks principle, right? Not underactive, not overactive, just right. And it really is the gut bacteria, the F-Prosnitsii digesting the fiber, creating the short chain fatty acids, modulating the immune response. And you can't hack this. You know, you can't like eat Doritos all day and then like, Take a butyrate supplement and think that you're good. Like, it just doesn't work that way. You got you to gotta put in the miles. <clears throat> That's like me just listening to Rich's podcast, which is so amazing, and not putting in the miles and thinking that right. I'm going to be an ultra runner. Like, you've got to put the miles in. And the miles, when it comes to the GI tract, the miles are the fiber.
1: Yeah, I know. That, that makes a lot of sense. How How soon after someone changes their diet or eats more vegetables or modifies it a bit that they can expect to see, or maybe not see, but just feel better.
0: Yeah. We actually know that from a study that was published in the journal nature in 2014. And I know this study really well, cause it's one of my favorites. The answer is about 30 hours. So in this study, they took, a, it was a Harvard study. They took a group of volunteers in Boston. They took nine people And they put them on essentially an Atkins diet, like a pork pork rinds and prosciutto diet, all animal protein fat. It literally was pork rinds and prosciutto for snack. And they put them on that diet for about a week. And then they rested them, took them off the diet, put them back on a regular diet. And then they took the same volunteers and they put them on a plant-based diet. Nothing extreme. It was jasmine rice, lentils. I think it was mango and papaya or something for snack, tomatoes, onions, garlic, and they saw that within about 30 hours of the food hitting the gut, the microbiome started to change dramatically. So when they were on the sort of Atkins pork rinds prosciutto diet, and not to say that the Atkins diet is pork rinds and prosciutto, so I'm, you know, not mm-hmm. making that association, but I say Atkins type diet because it was really high animal protein, high fat, and low carbohydrate diet. And so what they found was that the bi-loving species, what we call the bilophilia-type bacteria, which are necessary for digesting a lot of meat, the levels were high. But the problem is those bacteria are also associated with inflammation, diarrheal illnesses, et cetera, like colitis. And then when they introduced the plant diet, they saw the f CI and some of those, you know, the good um bacteria that ferment the fiber and create the short chain fatty acids those levels started to rise but what was really fascinating joe was the fact that the genes change too so the microbes also can switch on and off genes and so you know we think of our genes as static right like you, you get what you get and you don't get upset you just got dealt a bad genetic hand and that's the way it is no no not at all and we know this from identical twin studies who have identical genetic material, that most of these diseases are not 100% concordant. And so you have two people who have the exact same genes, but environmentally they're different. They've been eating different food, they've taken different medication, etc. So microbially they're different. And we see that microbially, that is what can determine whether the disease gets expressed or not. And I love this. This makes me so happy because... It's such an optimistic message, right, in medicine that, like, even if you're dealt this really bad hand genetically, you can change your diet. And in about 30 hours, you are are already different microbially. Like, you can listen to this podcast and make a salad and you're already on your way to literally being a different organism.
1: I mean, summing this up, it's eat more vegetables, which will get you more fiber. Uh, make sure that those are sourced from somewhere, like a farmer's market, somewhere where where there's dirt on them. They're as natural as possible. Yeah. Be cre- be creative. Follow the the three two one. Let's do all do this challenge of like trying to mix your vegetables up for a yeah. week and see if you can hit thirty different varieties. Um, do not take or drink anything diet or anything with artificial uh, 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 sweeteners in it. And then, um, of course, stay away as much as you can from any sort of over-the-counter medications or prescriptions with regards to antibiotics. If if you can, obviously, there's there's a time and place for everything, and uh, I think you'll be much better off, right? And you within thirty it, hours, you'll notice a the difference. Yeah. yeah, that's
0: it. That that is like great. Medical health advice. I mean, I know we're not here giving medical advice, but yeah. really, that is you—you you, you hit him.
1: Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Doctor Doctor Chuckin. And uh your I, again, just love the kind of practicality of everything that you talked about and how you deliver it. It's just like you just listen to you and you're like, oh yeah, duh, like that makes total sense. So. Loved it. Loved the conversation. And uh, we'll be on the lookout for your, your new book. How can people find out more about you?
0: Yeah. So com is a really great place to start. And then my medical practice and digestive center for wellness here in Washington, we've just gone virtual. So we really, with the pandemic, we really just felt this need to try and figure out how to democratize access And so we're launching a series of virtual courses. We have one called Understanding SIBO, Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. We have one called Drug Free IBD, which is really designed for people with inflammatory bowel disease who are trying to get off immune suppressive, immune modulating drugs. We have one called Getting Regular, which is all about constipation and bloat. And then I have free office hours every Tuesday at noon from 12 to 1230. It's a different topic Every Tuesday at noon, uh, we're launching the new website this Friday, which means by the time this podcast hits, we would have launched.: Yeah. And uh, you can sign up for those free office hours. I talk about the topic for about 10 minutes, and then it's just 20 minutes of questions. So we're really trying to engage with people and find out how we can be of service in creating better gut health and really democratizing access to what I think is, is really just kind of common sense information when you think about it. Right. But, but validated by a health professional. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can see how it confuses all of us when we go into oh, yeah. stores and there's these claims and then there's whole foods and then you think you're getting something healthy and it's just, it's a confusing time. So even breaking down the the common sense that we all kind of inherently know, um, but we need a reminder of constantly is, is great. And I think those resources are phenomenal. I know I'm going to check them out personally. And I really appreciate your, your time today. and Keep up the amazing work.
0: Thank you so much. It was really great being on with you. I appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much for the conversation, Dr. Chuck Cannon, for being my guest. I got so much out of the conversation, including a new perspective on dairy, which I keep hearing over and over about. My wife and I are trying to cut back, substituting with almond milk, oat milk. But cheese is the toughest cheese pizza. I have a pizza problem, and I haven't found a great alternative. I know there's alternatives out there, but uh, I know and I do feel a difference when I do cut out dairy. I just have to stick with it. I also love your simple approach to incorporating more vegetables with every meal, and you already know how much I love my morning smoothie. Um, That that is a comment to the audience there. Um, A way to pack in a lot of greens, especially if you don't feel like you're a big veg person. Anyway, thanks for listening today. Don't forget your ticket to refuel. It will truly be an unforgettable day. And remember, remember, you, me, we are not almost there.